0: We do all manner of things in order to be able to address those tremendously uncomfortable feelings of fear and shame. And we do everything from uh, fighting, from fleeing, from numbing, uh, with all sorts of things. And what happens when we do that is that the self, which is essentially the wholeness of a person, that uh, is always a threat when the ego is in control.
1: Everybody and welcome to another episode of JTV. Today, I'm extremely excited and honored to be joined by Rabbi Joseph Dweck, who is the senior rabbi of the SP and Sephardi community in the UK. Um, and I'm particularly um, thrilled to have him on today because I so deeply value his deep thinking, um, his sensitive insights into Torah, which has come from a very long time of, um, of study. Um, and also because he's a, a wonderful mentor and a and a friend uh, to me so rabbi thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule in america at the moment uh, because you're currently across the pond and thank you for joining us here today
0: ali it's an honor and pleasure really an honor thanks for having me
1: and also we have to mention that you've just started up a new podcast called humans being right yes
0: i have we actually did six episodes for our first season which yeah, I'm very excited about it. thanks for mentioning.
1: Fantastic, and that's available across all the main yeah. uh, podcast platforms, I assume. So we were just talking just before this about um, the topic of ego, and that it's uh, part of the work of life that Judaism demands of us, or asks of us, is to try and get rid of our ego, let our ego get out of the way. And when I mean, what I mean by ego is, you know, focusing on uh, I guess an over overly sensitive kind of self-consciousness uh, and, and self-concern um, and we were talking about what are the options for getting rid of the ego you know do you just stop focusing on yourself but then what what about you and so you were saying that there's a difference between ego and self and yeah. can you talk a bit about that what you mean by that and how how do we navigate these two things?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean it depends. We can speak about it from various paradigms. In in Judaism, the ego is seen as what the what Chazal would normally call the yetzer Hara, or the the, the drive for, for creativity that is that is centered towards um, counterproductivity or evil or you know or, or negative negative things. Um, because it's coming from within, right? I mean, these are things that are coming from within and and the creative drives that we have can be used for either positive or negative things. When we talk about me, right, who I am, we often get confused between what I would term, just to be able to differentiate it in, 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 in our language, the ego and the self. And what I mean by that is that the ego is essentially based in fear and shame. And what I, and what that means is that the ego is always concerned that it is either in threat or not, not uh, um, valuable or worth worthwhile. And so there's always something that's going to happen to something that need, that one needs to protect from something that one needs to be concerned about in terms of one's very being uh, in life. And so um, we do all manner of things in order to be able to address those tremendously uncomfortable feelings of fear and shame. And we do everything from uh, fighting, from fleeing, from numbing, uh, with all sorts of things. And what happens when we do that is that the self, which is essentially the wholeness of a person, a person's sense of, of integrated, whole, meaningful. Um, Uh, thoughtful, content, peaceful existence in this world, right? When we are just happy to be, that uh, is always a threat when the ego is in control. And because the ego is survive oriented, it has a tremendous amount of power and it has veto power in our brains to be able to assert itself and to say, we're in trouble We've got to do this. And sometimes it happens, you know, because it's a very old part of our brain. I mean, you know, uh, biological psychologists will talk about it manifesting in the, in the amygdala or in the limbic system of the brain, which is a very old structure of the brain. It it, it develops first. It's shared across, um, you know, across, across animal, animal species, um, even down to the reptilian. So sometimes it's called the lizard brain. It's a very old aspect of the brain. Chazal actually say that the Yitzhahara is a melech zaken. It's an old king, uksil, but not a very intelligent one, right? It's not really planning and thinking and strategizing. It's just responding to whatever is in in the moment. And it's very old. Yeah, whereas when it comes to the self, Chazal say, they talk about being sameach bechilko, right? Being happy, not being okay with, being happy with one's, Lot or what? What one the space of life that one has, right? So that's not necessarily the assets that I have or the talents that I have, but simply my very being, my existence, my life,
1: being happy with with what I am and how I and how I and how I. Am. But what is your life other than the 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 things, the people around you, the things around you, the the, and of course the things you bring to it? Um, but how, how do you differentiate between Experience and self. You know what I mean? So
0: those things, those things that you say, this people around you and the interactions, those are all very important to life, but they're secondary to your own being. It's important for people to be able to come to a certain level in life. And there are and I say certain level because there are levels of this, right? There is constant growth that we are engaging in life as long as we are alive. But to a level in which we are accepting of the value and reality of ourselves. And uh, for so many of us, there are parts of ourselves, as we grow and develop in this world, that we are uncomfortable, not necessarily consciously, it could be unconscious, but that we're uncomfortable embracing, we're uncomfortable even looking at. And so our brains also have a tendency to hide things from us, right, from our consciousness about ourselves. And we get very touchy when people might criticize aspects of of things that kind of poke at those elements of self. But what what Chazal prompt us to do, Hilul Zaken was uh, you know very much spoke about the importance of being able to hold oneself in high value. When he says, you know, Ani Li if I'm not going to do for me, who's going to do for me? Or when he talks about, you know, the Simchat Bittushoeva at Sukkot, where there was this great celebration that, that only Hakanim participated in, he would say, if I am here, everything is here. To be able to say that, to be able to say that without hubris, to be able to simply say that as a matter of fact, of recognizing I am in my wholeness, in all of the aspects and complexities of my person, because the reality is, Ali, I mean, you know, I'm sure that you, you, you would re- agree that human beings are quite complex. There's a lot going on inside us. There is very many aspects. You don't agree? <laughs> there's a, I think there's a lot going on inside us. And, and part of life is being able to, first of all, recognize what it is that's going on inside, what elements of self there are. And, and secondly, how to integrate those into a whole, um, meaningful, consistent identity or being. And that is, for all intents and purposes, the work of our lives. It's the same reason why the first word of God to creation is simply, Yehi, Be. And that's all HaKadosh Baruch Hu really, all God really ever asks us to do. When he, the first words that God says to Abraham, to Abraham Avinu, Lech, Lecha, go for you, Abraham. Rashi insists that we make sure not to read that in any other way, not for anybody else. So Rashi says, For your good, for your enjoyment, for your life, Abraham, you need to do this for you because God's not going to do that for us. God's put us in here to be able to create ourselves, to develop ourselves. Of course, he helps. There's like you were saying at the very beginning, there are times where we feel touched and graced by God's involvement in our life. But to make us into us is our job. So that element of self, that element of wholeness of I am, and being able to say that in full confidence and strength, without fear, without shame, that is the work of our lives. Ego is always afraid and very often shameful. And so we struggle to try and there are people that can't get around that, right? And we
1: find ourselves sometimes in life where we have trouble getting around that. Does the ego does the ego itself feel shame or the ego makes the self-feel shame?
0: I don't know that there's necessarily um, a, a considerable difference between the two. The reality is, is that in the place of ego, or from what it is that we call ego in the vernacular, I mean, you know, Freud might have termed ego a touch different than we do in the general vernacular. By ego, I mean the, 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 um, the concerned element of me, of my being, and where I have to protect my life against threat, right? That's the essential element of ego. Yes, there is shame involved in that. Whether it's coming from it or it's projecting or however it is that it manifests, the bottom line is is that it feels inadequate. It feels less than. It feels missing. It experiences lack that others might have or experiences something that I am not, not able to uh, present or manifest in, in life. And that runs together with fear back and forth. Shame and fear are wonderful bedfellows because <laughs> they work on each other constantly. And our, the job of our life is to be able to emerge out of that, to heal those things, and to be able to hold the wholeness of self. Because if you think about it, Ali, from a Jewish perspective, right, from a Jewish perspective, where God is involved in this, God created us. So for me to be to feel that I am inadequate or less than or lacking value is essentially to say that God messed up. And there's an element of blasphemy in that. There's a beautiful story, uh, if I can share, it's very, very short, that I always mention, it's in Masichet Ta'anit, and where there was a, Chazal say that, you know, one of the, the, the hachamim had just come from studying with his rav And his mind was on the lofty heavens of intellectual uh, grandeur. And he just felt that he was kind of king of the world. And as he's riding, there is a very ugly man. That's what Gemara says, that that comes up by by his his side. And, And in his intellectual mind, he turns to this man, the rabbi, and he says, are all of the people in the village you come from as ugly as you? And you would think, like, how could the Rav say such an insensitive and callous thing? And that's to be dealt with in the in the sugya. But what the man responds is extremely telling. The man, without missing a beat, turns to the rabbi and says, I don't know, why don't you ask the one who made me? And immediately the Rav recognizes that he sinned in, in, in even suggesting that there was deficiency. And so for us, it's important for us to remember that that Torah teaches us, Judaism teaches us, in the very opening elements of the Bible, of the Torah, that talk about the creation of man, that the life spirit in us is the breath of God. And that that's something we are we are meant to embrace and internalize genuinely. And if this is what it is that we are, if the breath of God is life worth in us, then we really do need to be able to exorcise the fear and shame that completely inhibits us from being able to to live that way.
1: Yeah. It isn't the truth though that um, a part of us actually well a big part of us I don't know whether it's the ego itself that's doing this to us but a part of us doesn't want let, to want to let go of the ego because you know we feel like it's as you say protecting us and all that kind of thing and also we feel that it's a huge part of us isn't even aware of it and it's and it's telling us it's acting in our best interests right? And so of course it is. Yeah, but that's the tactic of the ego. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly.
0: But but I mean, it's a wonderful tactic when to to say you can't afford to let me go. Yeah, yeah. Is is also a way to completely cripple a human being.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. And so we, the more that we play into that fear, the more we give ourselves over to that bondage of ego, and it really is a, a form of bondage. It's one of the reasons why there's you know people struggle with addiction so much. And part of, part of the struggle of addiction is this feeling that you cannot let me go. If you let me go, whatever it is that the addiction is, if you let me go, the world falls apart. You are nothing. And and we all have that on some level or another. You know, The greatest ones among us have managed in their lives to be able to quiet that down tremendously and to live from a place of whole self. But I can say to you, Ali, not just from an academic perspective, but from personal experience on whatever level. I mean, I still struggle like everyone else does with my ego. I'm not not coming at you in any way, shape, or form to say I've, I've got it. But I can say that at 46, I am not the same as I was at 26, and that I've learned more about myself with the capital S. And in terms of that, one does come to an awareness in which The letting go of the ego is itself liberation and freedom to be able to be oneself.
1: Is there something you are sacrificing, though? Is is there something that's been lost as a result of letting go of the ego?
0: The only thing thing that's been lost are chains. Genuinely, when one is able to emerge beyond that. Look, the ego is part of
1: us. No, but what I'm saying is that there's certain pleasures. Yes. You know, you know kina kavod taiva. You know, like, there's certain pleasures that when when achieved, that the ego rejoices in and there's, some of those things are lost, right? As a result of letting go. I'm of not the sure. Idea. I mean,
0: those three that you mentioned, kina, taiva, kavod, you know that the, the mishnah, the the says that those three things, which literally mean honour, um, uh, desire, and jealousy.
1: What I mean is when those things are Achieve, let's say d- desire. Well, or wasn't what you
0: mean by achieve. I'm not sure what it is that
1: you mean. Experience.
0: Experience those things. Like Chazal say, they say that those three things pull a person out of the world. They remove a person from life, because they become so self-absorbed and self-centered, which essentially is another way of saying egocentric. Yeah, that. They shut a person down from being able to live. So the honor, if I do not simply know that my weight literally is what kavod means. Kavod comes from kaved. There is a weightiness of my own existence. If I don't know that there is a natural weightiness to my own existence, then no matter how much I look for it from the outside, it will never satisfy. If I don't know that the experience of life in terms of ta'va, in terms of my desire for things, if I'm looking for things in order to be able to fill void in me, which so many of us do,
1: it will never be filled. And I will I'm constantly saying, be looking. Right. But what I'm saying is when you the, the one thing that is lost when you remove the chains of ego is those quick hits that never last. But the quick hit pleasures of desire yes, or honor. Up, right. But when one does recognize is that I don't even want those anymore.
0: They don't, because they're quick fixes, because they do not last, because they do not fill a weighty element of real self, they are wastes of time. And when one is in the state of ego, one can't even relate that they're wastes of time because one can't imagine surviving without them. Because the pain is too great. The shame is too great to bear. That's the genuine truth. So the whole of Torah prompts us towards loving Whole self, all of it and and that 's the genuine endeavor of our lives and the main reason for that is because when we can get there, we can actually have full, loving, meaningful, healthy relationships, and then that means that we can actually have that with god and until we can have loving, whole, healthy relationships with people, we cannot have them with God.
1: people believe that they can I heard a rabbi say that. Um... Uh, when we talk about self esteem, you know, h- high self esteem, low self esteem, he said part of the problem with that is too much focus on self. And so, you know, if you focus on low self esteem, oh, I'm nothing, I'm not, you're, you're crippled because you're focused too much. In either case, you're focusing so much on yourself. What's the balance between, you know, ha- having a, a healthy, uh, love of self, but also not being, you know, immersed in, in, in the self that you can't actually look outwards. I mean, do you think he has a point about there's, there's something overly self-indulgent, even though I, most people that have low self-esteem, well, everyone is, is really a, has, is, is a victim, has been, or it's, has suffered, experiences that because of things that have happened to them, right? Um, but to what extent do you think he actually... This is a good point, that shift, part of the getting rid of the, sh- the shackles of, of ego um, and self-esteem uh, issues is by less focus on self.
0: So I'll say this, I still think it's important to be able to use the different terms, ego and self. And it sounds to me like what that rabbi is, is trying to say is that if you are looking at yourself in terms of worry, do I have enough self-esteem? Am I too low self-esteem? And so on and so forth. That's all ego. It's all a matter of, oh no, am I okay? Yeah. And that worry is entirely egocentric. Yeah. It's Entirely a question of am I okay? What, what has to happen is we begin from the I am okay. Why? Elohai neshama shenatata So first things, according to Chazal, before Mode'ani was written, Mode'ani is only 500 years old, The first thing that we were meant to say in the morning was that, my Lord, the soul you have blown into me, right, that you have given of your breath into me is pure. That's meant to be the first thing that we say every day. So when I come from that axiom, right, that base truth, the first thing is I am pure. I am okay. Are there things that I need to address about myself? Perhaps. Are there things that I want to grow into? Yes. Are there elements of myself that I'd like to develop? Yes. All of that is fine, but I don't feel that I am inadequate as I am before God. And that is a shift that must happen. So it's not a matter of do I focus on myself enough or not. The question is, think of it in terms of taking care of a child, right? Because we don't think about... Worrying about ourselves, I shouldn't use worrying as, as a term, but but mean in the sense of taking care, right? Giving care to ourselves. We must care for ourselves regularly. Yeah. Because otherwise we fall apart. So if I think about it in terms of a child, is it Is there, you know, do I think about the fact that I need to think how do I feed this child, make sure that this child sleeps well, this child is closed, this child is loved, this child is embraced, this child is played with, this child has has encouragement. All of the elements that go into raising a strong, robust, healthy child go into maintaining and holding a human being's life always. And so if it isn't too much to think about in terms of that child, it's not too much to think about in terms of ourselves. Should I not be thinking about, am I eating well? Am I sleeping well? Am I, am I having enough uh, play in my life? Because that's part of human experience. Am I having enough interaction, social, social stimulation in my life? Am I thinking enough in my life? All of those questions are extremely important, meaningful, fundamental questions to a healthy human existence. So if we think, oh, no, I'm thinking about myself too much, well, then that's a failure if it's in those terms. If it's a sitting of worry, am I enough? Am I not enough? Will people like me or not like me? That, unfortunately, is a difficult mind loop that we get ourselves into that, that wastes our time because the given should be, of course, you are enough enough and worthy. Your life force is the breath of God. Nothing less. Start there. And build. And then, of course, it's like, like I mentioned, Hillel Zaken. He was the major teacher of this. So there's a beautiful story in the Talmud that says that Hillel Zaken was running through the streets and the students are running after him. And the students say, rabbin where are you going? And he says, I'm going to do a huge mitzvah. And he, they say, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to take a bath. <laughs> they say, "What are you talking about?" they said well i'll ask you i mean if 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 the king gave you an image in his likeness, would you not keep that in a good, prominent place in your home and shine it and keep it clean all the time? You never know when the king might be coming and so on? Well, it says that God created us in his image. I'm going to take care of that. I take that seriously, says he that's okay.
1: Yeah, but doing- the reality is, is that
0: so many of us don't take that seriously.
1: But he's right. But he's doing that self care, not not for him. It's for God.
0: It's he's doing God. it. He's doing it for his own betterment because he recognizes this relationship that he has with God. He holds himself of high esteem
1: because right. he is essentially from God right but the point is it's not about him
0: it's about it is about him of course it's about him because the whole beauty is the fact that he was created right that's the whole point of it you are an absolutely unique individual and that's something you need to love and embrace mm-hmm. and, what and of- anything that cuts away at that is counterproductive
1: and what do we do do about um you know we talk about one of the issues with the ego is is Self-image and self-worth. What about the issue of just the ego resists things when things aren't going your way Or you want more of this or that in your life and you're not getting it and you know, you talk about um, Looking after yourself and self-care and do I have enough of you know this in my life? Have I spent enough time doing but sometimes you those things those those options are taken away Right, and so then the question is the ego then screams. No, it shouldn't be this way And that's a lot of, I think, a huge amount of anxiety people have today. My life has to be, especially in the the world of Instagram and Facebook, where everyone posts their um, perfect lives that are actually not perfect. Um, How do we deal with that part of the ego, which says, needs to be this way, but God's like, actually, it's not going to be that way. (laughs)
0: Look, I think it's important to say that the ego is within us for good reasons right there there are things that it does do that are valuable and, and it is there are times where i need to fight for myself there are times where I, there are times where i need to fly from dangerous situations and you know the ego is what helps me do that right but it is also important to recognize that there are different stages of life in some situations we are either surviving and in other situations we are thriving We can either survive or thrive. And in some circumstances, we don't have the choice. Sometimes we are forced into a situation where we have to now just survive, which means that we will not thrive. And if that is the case, then so be it. You know, we have to accept that that is what the circumstance is. None of those situations should bring us to a point in which we feel that we are not, by our very existence, worthy and whole. And the ego will tell us, if you don't have this, you're nothing. That's the tactic. And Uh we believe that hook, line, and sinker. What what one has to recognize is that at the end of the day, there is nothing external to oneself that completely defines oneself. There are many enhancing things. There are many things that help us, that make us thrive. But at the end of the day, the self exists only within us, and nothing else. And one can be chas v'shalom, stripped of every last element of life, except for the life itself. And one is able to come through, and rebuild if one is able to recognize that that one doesn't define oneself by external entities. That's very much about what the book of Job is about, right? The book of Yov is about, uh, to present those ideas to us.
1: Well, as we mentioned biblical characters, I was just about to say. Um, One of our shared uh, favourite biblical characters being Yosef, Joseph, and you talk about surviving versus thriving, isn't part of what we learn from him that even though he goes through some shameful, painful experiences, um, didn't he seemed to thrive even when he was in, in prison i mean maybe thrive is the wrong word but would you say joseph was just surviving in those difficult circumstances or was it because I, I feel like the language of the biblical commentaries is that he i don't know if thrive is the right word but he he rose to the occasion right
0: well i think that yosef in this first of all yosef i mean i always like to point out that the narrative of the biographical you know, treatment of Joseph's life is the longest biographical narrative in the Torah. So it's extremely significant, his life. And it's there to definitely teach us some major fundamentals about how it is that we live. And what we find from Yosef are two aspects of his life. There are times where we see him just surviving. And there are times where we see him thriving. There are times where we see him thrown in jail and where he genuinely believes that his life is, for all intents and purposes, over and completely restricted. And then there's times where he's the viceroy, his father, and whole of his family is living with him in Egypt. He's rolling, as we would say. You know, he's doing it phenomenally. Um, and it's important that we see him in both of those circumstances, because I do believe that Yosef definitely is a model for us of strong self, of being able to be very confident in one's own self and bank on that, you know, completely. And we see that even in the situations of survival, one of the major elements that Yosef does not compromise is his integrity. Because he recognizes that in any given situation, the one consistent uh, element is his self. It's always Yosef. It's either Yosef in jail, Yosef in the house of Potiphar, Yosef as viceroy of Egypt. Whatever it is that he's doing, he does it, to his very best, because he recognizes that that is the only non-variable. And no matter where it is that he finds himself, because think about it, Ali, this is an important thing to think about that I, I think that people don't always have a consciousness of. Human beings, because of the nature of, our free, our, of, our, of the freedom of our thought, right, at least in our understanding our experience of it, we all have any number of innumerable lives that we can lead. In other words, there's nothing stopping either you or me or anyone else from picking up, moving to another city, country, uh, choosing to do something else. Right. There's there's nothing that's stopping us from doing any of those things. It may be unreasonable for us to do those things. It may be that there are certain trappings that keep us in line from doing these things. But the bottom line is there is nothing really stopping any one of us from really saying, I'm doing something else. I'm moving somewhere else, changing my name to something else, engaging in other behaviors completely. There's nothing that stops us from doing that. And that means, Ali, that that the life that we actually end up living is a sampling. It's a sample of the various lives that we possibly could live. And the only thing that is constant in any one of those lives is me. The one thing that is consistent is whatever it is that I choose, it'll be me doing it. So as far as Yosef was concerned, it didn't matter whether he was in jail or viceroy of Egypt. He needed to do it with the greatest of integrity and the best self that he could be. And he did. That's one of the things that the Torah keeps telling us about his stations, that whatever it was that he was doing, he rose to the top. And it's it was successful because he dedicated himself completely faithfully in just being in it in the best way he could, rather than trying to figure out how he could finagle his way to protect himself, to move his situation, manipulate the people
1: around him. And so on. So, was he, is it wrong to use the word that he, he thrived in prison? Or maybe his. I don't think that he was thriving in prison.
0: I think he was surviving in prison, but he was surviving entirely as himself, faithful to himself from an integrity that was clear. I think he was thriving towards the end of his time as viceroy, and we we'll right. see that. Right. He was on top of the world, literally. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, we get to see him in those various stages, but the one constant was his faithfulness to his identity and to his integrity. That was not compromised.
1: Well, you're head of the s and Sephardi community um, here in the UK, and we haven't spoken a great deal on JTV about um, how and I'm thinking not so much sociologically, but all, but also theologically, how the Muslim and Jewish worlds have influenced and interacted with each other over the last 1,000 years. And I just wondered if you had any interesting insights to share on that matter, because we haven't really delved, delved into that that much.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it's a very vast topic, you know, to say, to, to open, first of all. And I will also say that being part of the S&P here in the the country, the Spanish and Portuguese, um, they were not very much influenced by the Muslim world at all because they they were very Western. They remained in the West for a long time. But in general, the Sfaradim, I mean, a huge constituency of mine right now are are Iraqi Jews, Egyptian Jews, Lebanese Jews. Um, It depends on which time we're talking about. If you go back to the time of the Rambam, um, you know, 11, 1200s, twelve hundreds—that kind of time. You know, where in Spain, at least in the southern, in southern Spain, what's known as the Andalusia, um, there were times of Muslim uh, rule in that in that period, in that area, which was the height of enlightenment of the day. They were translating Greek uh, philosophy into Arabic. There was a tremendous amount of robust uh, academic. Uh, thought and study, um, and you know, you have so many of the, of the Spanish Sephardi scholars, rabbis, there were poets, there were, there were military generals, there were you know, all kinds of different aspects of society that, these, that the Sephardic Jews integrated into, and that was very much because of the nature of the Muslim um, society, and where they very much embraced the, the world. And try to integrate into the world, um, but that was at that time. That was then. Uh, as you fast forward, maybe to you know, three, two, three hundred years ago, and you look at the the uh, the Jews that were living in the Mediterranean basin, North Africa, the Middle East. Um, they're living in Muslim societies, and those societies are not uh, as enlightened as the old Spanish, you know, of the, of the 11th and 12th centuries, that, that era, but they are nonetheless still very much integrated into society. When I mean they, I mean the Jews, the Jews who lived in Muslim lands um, didn't really live in ghettos. They didn't live in a great deal of persecution. I mean, there were pockets of persecution here and there, but for the most part, they lived in peace for hundreds of years with their Arab neighbors. They were, they were per- considered second-class citizens, but nonetheless integrated into society very, very much so. And so there was always a tradition, even from those old Spaniards that had moved throughout the Mediterranean basin after the exile, after 1492, you know, the expulsion from Spain and the, and the, uh, the Inquisition, um, who had moved throughout the Middle East, the Mediterranean basin, the Middle East and North Africa, they always maintained a, a culture of integrating into the world around them and the society around them. Um, and that was very much part of the influence of, of Islam or the Islamic societies of, of the time that we saw ourselves. I say that uh, noting that I'm speaking in broad strokes. right? So there are always, of course, I'm, I'm speaking very sweepingly. There are always you know specifics that may not fall squarely into that description. But overall, it was very much that way. And so it, it is very much of the Sephardi... Um, tradition, that we we tend to have tradition of integrating into society. Uh, at the same time, we have a very strong tradition of, of Torah study, of the text of the, of the written Torah being very much on our lips, if you will, on our mouth. So the way that we taught our children was very much in the kitab, that's what it was called, the kitab, which was to be able to learn the psukim, the actual verses of the Torah, to pronounce them properly, to sing them properly, to have them as part of our mind and psyche, um, as very much part of our identity. So, in a, in, a, in a genuine Sephardi synagogue, you pronounce a word incorrectly, and you know they 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 kill you. You're not allowed to pronounce things incorrectly. You're not allowed to you know to to uh, quote psukim uh, incorrectly. That's very much the bedrock of how it is that we hold ourselves. So that becomes the center of our identity. And with that, we go out into the world and, and we use that as our framework in order to be able to, to engage and integrate. At the heart of it all, and I think that this is, does have to do with being in an Islamic society, is that the one thing that we kind of share in a very general way, not in a very specific philosophical way, is that we see that God is one and that he's the sole source of all that is. And so the world is an expression of God. And it's something we're supposed to uh, experience and learn about in order to be able to connect with him and get to know him, so to speak.
1: And I think part of uh, a result of just of of integrating into the world around you um, without ever compromising one's own values or identity that happened in the Sephardi world is it's allowed for, I think, a slightly more um, open-mindedness and le- rec- less less of a requirement for clear uh, labels and, 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 and dividing oneself into lots of different bubbles and, and sex. Um, and I think one of the things that I find comes very naturally to uh, Sephardi communities and families is there may well be a, a variety uh, within the family or community of um, lifestyles or, or levels of observance, but there's no real distinctions that are made. You know, you're a Jew. Well, yeah, but
0: there are many reasons for that. I mean, for the Sfaradim, it's true that you know the level of observance for us is important, but we don't reject necessarily people based on their level of observance, right? We don't, and we don't define them as being different. You do have. To, I mean, one does have to remember that that uh, for the most part, the Sfaradim in the Middle East didn't experience the Enlightenment in any significant way. And so they didn't have to deal with the major challenges that the Enlightenment brought. At the same time, the Sephardim didn't live in ghettos and didn't live in isolated uh, you know, situations. And I don't say that as, as criticism to the Ashkenazim. The Ashkenazim in ver, very often had to. They had no choice but to live that way. But whatever it is, the reality was that they were able to kind of like hold themselves in, in conclave, you know, away from what was going on in the outside world. And when they had to, you know, when, when the gates were kind of ripped open uh, from that, there was a tremendous challenge. How do we do this now? How do we reintegrate? Whereas for the Sfaradim, they had a thousand years of tradition of integration. And so it was something that, like, as you say, very, very natural. And 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 that element of enlightenment, of opening the ghettos, of coming into society, of questioning how it is that we integrate our religious life into society, for uh, many of the Ashkenazim was um, a new and unchartered uh, uh, territory, and that created many divisions in terms of how do we do this. Uh, whereas for the Sfaradim, it was much more natural.
1: Yeah, absolutely um rabbi thank you so so much for your time i actually have like four other questions that i wanted to ask you which means we'll do it again we'll have to do another time that's what i was about to say it means that i'm not going to let you go we're going to have to do this again sometime i look forward um but thank you so much for your time and uh we look forward to welcoming you back to the uk soon whenever you uh i'll be back soon i'll be back soon only way a couple of weeks but always a pleasure always a pleasure thank you so much thank you rabbi Thank you for joining us today and listening to JTV Podcasts. You can buy more podcasts from JTV, including interviews with Rabbi Manis Friedman, Dennis Prager, Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz, and many more. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Just search for JTV Podcasts with Oli Hannesfeld. Don't forget to subscribe on the JTV YouTube channel for hundreds of videos on Jewish philosophy, Israel, Jewish wisdom, and much, much more. Please consider supporting us so we can continue to grow. Just visit paypal.me forward slash JTV channel.